Hi, this is Michael Curtis, and you are listening to Save for Half, so roll them if you got them. School games and the modern games inspired by them. Bring on your goblin holes and band of oaks, hawking zombies and bows. And oh no, no, troll, don't slow me down, no, no. Don't dig a vicious and a vicious Welcome, one and all, to the Safer Half Podcast, a podcast about old school games and the modern games inspired by them. This is episode 41. I am one of your hosts, who's barely conscious, DM Mike. And I am joined by DM Liz, who is playing the role of Pam Ewing. Hello, I'm Hello. going to write a scoop about you. Da, da, da. <laughs> and joining us over there is Bobby Ewing, DM Corbett. I won't put up with this anymore, JR. <laughs> Uh, I can see where this is going. <laughs> Later, he'll get out of the shower and the last season wouldn't have happened. <laughs> and that's DM Jim over there as the role of Jacques Ewing. Thank you, thank you. The exact character Mike Curtis made me play when we played Dallas at North Texas Con because <laughs> he announced loudly the characters will be distributed by player age. Ooh. <laughs> I did that because you're a curmudgeon, not so much about age. But anyway. That's why I got stuck with crappy Sue Ellen. <laughs> and I'm nobody because I'm the director. And we are talking this time about the Dallas television role-playing game put out in 1980 by Simulations Publications Incorporated. Written by Jim Dunnigan. And is allegedly a role-playing game published during the height of the Who Shot JR period, if everyone's old oh, enough yeah. to remember that. Well, that's like Fonzie Jumps the Shark. I mean, that's one of those TV tropes that lives. Old enough to draw a cartoon hobbit in college at freshman year that said Who Shot JRR. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even watch Dallas, and I knew Who Shot JR. You know, the Same. whole shtick. <laughs> I was more of a dynasty guy myself. Uh, my my one and only nighttime soap that I tried watching was Falcon Crest. And like most of Liz's TV choices, it got canceled in the first season. <laughs> yep. I am the kiss of death when it comes to TV shows. If I like something, it's probably going to go away very quickly. Now, when it comes to primetime soap operas, Battlestar Galactica really had it locked up. <laughs> Can't argue there. Did you have a fave, Jim? Uh, not not primetime. I watched a lot of Dallas in later seasons just because I was married at the time, and that was my wife's favorite show. I was more in college. We were all big Days of Our Lives heads. So, like, oh. when Star Trek The Next Generation premiered, I went, what's Eugene doing on Star Trek? That, that's true. <laughs> that's true. During the summers, I would spend with my cousins in Georgia, 
And they both watched Days of Our Lives religiously. And I started watching because they were watching and I was spending time with them. And yeah, that was the first place I saw John Delancey too. <laughs> back, back, back on that show when Q was dating uh, Harley Quinn. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. You yeah, see, yeah, yeah. listeners, there was a time when there were only three, <laughs> no, four television networks. And if it wasn't on there, you didn't watch it. Mm-hmm. And if it was on there and you had nothing else to do, you watched it anyway. But anyway. It was either golf or the aquarium. So golf won yep. most of the time. <laughs> so anyway, let's uh, move into Mike and the Mechanics, and I'll start talking about this thing. It's time for Mike and the Mechanics. Sorry, sorry. That's Mike and the Mechanics of the game. My bad. Yeah, man, fill up some airtime because I'm actually got to bet with myself whether or not we can get over an hour out of a 16-page rule book that's only got six pages of rules in it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, but all those characters actually come on. There, there's an <laughs> argument I've got with that too. So, all right, mechanics. First of all, I'll point out that this game is light. 16-page rulebook, and that includes three quote-unquote adventures, a 16-page scriptwriter's guide, which is for the director, a nine-page book that is basically the nine main characters' character sheets all put together, 56 organization and individual plot cards, and two teeny-weeny little D6 dice. Man, you're just going to use up all of Jim's top fives right there. <laughs> yeah, there goes number four, two D6 dice. And <laughs> all right. You're supposed to play one of the major characters from the TV show Dallas. And each character is given certain abilities listed as power, persuasion, coercion, seduction, investigation, and luck. The... uh mechanic is basically you try to do anything it's based on one of your attributes then you add in modifiers either bonuses or penalties depending on what how things go in the game and then you roll 2d6 if you can get that number under you succeed otherwise you don't a 12 or better is an auto success a one or less is an auto failure there are three different phases to the game Each scene has a presentation phase where the director pretty much tells the players, this is what's happening. There's a negotiation phase where the players negotiate amongst each other for control of certain people or groups or power plays or backstabs or whatever. And then there's the conflict phase where things are resolved. This reminded me a lot of Diplomacy, the board game, actually. And that's pretty much it, rules-wise. There's a little more granularity to it, and we'll get into it as things go on. But all right, well, I guess we'll go to top fives, but first we'll hit the first impressions. That's just a first impression. I could be totally wrong. It's only a first impression. And though the impression is strong, it never can hurt to question. First impressions, since you chose it, Corbett. 
<laughs> technically, I gave it up for DM Kojo. Oh, wait, did it? Was it DM Kojo? I'm going to say it was DM Kojo. Let's so I'll say blame it, him. Everything else was DM to- Kojo. So let's say it's DM Kojo. No one That's realizes really it, but Liz and I manipulated you into picking this game because we didn't want to use our picks. <laughs> <laughs> we want to cover it, but not so much that we want to use one of our own. Actually, I kind of know how that is. But anyway. Okay, first impression was like, oh, good. <laughs> I was not a I was not a fan of the show. I mean, it's ridiculous to watch it, but now that I've kind of retouched on it, like I I see the benefits of the game, and actually the series a little bit reminds me of uh, Yellowstone that everybody's like raving about right now. Really, I thought it was about Yogi. <laughs> <laughs> That's Jellystone. Yes, yes, that is hilarious. My bad, my bad. <laughs> no, Yogi Bear and Kevin Costner, basically the same person. Basically. So. Yeah. They both want picnic baskets. They both want Oscars. <laughs> anyway, that's it. They're running from rangers trying to arrest them. <laughs> okay. DM Liz. Well, my first impression, very similar to Corbett's. <laughs> Honestly, I don't know how SPI does it. But every single game I have read of theirs puts my brain into some kind of weird fugue state ooh, where ooh, I know. everything just shuts down and goes into sleep mode. And several pages later, I come to and I'm wondering, what did I just read? And I have to go over it all again. Ooh, ooh, I know. I know. Pick me. Pick me. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they write everything like stereo instructions. That's why. But, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway. This... Oh, dude, we need to get you a copy of John Carter of Mars. Uh, that, that thing will put you in a coma. No. <laughs> so, yeah, the, this this is a real slog to get through. And, and, you know, as you mentioned, the book is just not that big. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I would like to conclude with Michael Curtis is an absolute genius for managing to make this game fun when he ran it at North Texas RPG Con a few years back. <laughs> okay, Jim? My first impression is Michael Curtis was a genius, except <laughs> now he's on my crap list because he made, he, he ran this game set in the future and instead of an oil company, it was Asteroid Mining Company. And between that and the way Mike runs games we had a blast liz and i were at the same table along with some other people we all know and that caused me to get on ebay and spend i don't know 30 bucks on a copy of this game that showed up unpunched because nobody in the last 42 years <laughs> had ever played that copy and guess what it's still unpunched well, yeah it was it was a michael curtis game it, like you know if you, the four of us sat down to play pathfinder and somebody was willing to run it i'm sure the four of us would have a great time well, but not some, my cup of tea otherwise well it's a perfect example of a good enough dm can make any game fun. Very true. Although, talking about the unpunched, like I said off air, Redmond Simonson was quoted as saying they made 80,000 copies of this game, which was 79,999 more than people actually wanted. <laughs> I'll presume that w- one copy went to Jim Dunnigan's library. So <laughs> That's right. So, so anyway, my first impressions in conclusion are Michael Curtis owes me 30 bucks. that's fair my first impression there was a game that jim dunnigan wrote for strategy and tactics magazine called the plot to assassinate hitler or as they called it among this spi offices plot to assassinate dunnigan and this plays and reads very much like that game but I guess I'm more willing to buy it when the SS and the Abwehr and the German resistance and all these other groups are jockeying to try to get access to kill Hitler than this soap opera game. And it just, I don't see it as a role-playing game. This wasn't a role-playing game to me because really, except for setting up 
presentation by the director, no role-playing need need apply in this game, period. It's no more a role-playing game than Dungeon is. But, you know, on the other hand, I know what SPI was trying to do. They were trying to appeal to non-adventure gamers of the time. And in 1980, mm. you know, they were trying to appeal more or less to Dallas TV watchers. Well, see, you're saying it the nice way. The, the, the other way to say it is it was published as a cash grab to try and solve some of their debt-ridden problems <laughs> that have caused the company to flame out two years after this. Yeah, it's amazing they lasted two more years, honestly. This, between the licensing and the publication, this couldn't have been cheap. But anyway, let's get into the top fives before I get too grousy. What do you get when a fantasy gaming horror sci-fi geek and an army veteran history nerd want to do a comic book related podcast? Why? You get the Weird Wars podcast, of course. Weird War Tales was a 124 issue DC comic book series published from 1971 to 1983. Along the way, we'll sidetrack on to an occasional special mission where we discuss an issue of a like themed comic book from a different title or publisher. There are also the rare road Warriors episodes where we report on comic-related road trips like conventions or visiting the homes and grave sites of comic greats. We'll nitpick what the comics creative team got wrong and crawl about what they got right. We'll also break down the facts behind the fiction in the stories which is sometimes quite weird in its own right. Even the letters page and our favorite ads can't escape our judgment just as we can't escape yours in our own dead letter office mailbag. Torpedo-eating dinosaurs. Haunted chateaus. Time-traveling rats. Zombie robots. Day-walking vampires. Gargoyle armies. And that's just in the first 20 Weird War Tales episodes. So, report for duty with the Weird Warriors podcast with Max and Rich, where we promise to make war no more. Say for half, top five. In five, four, three, two. And we'll start with uh, Corbett again. Okay, top fives. You've complained that there are only 16 pages of rules. I just want to point out three of those rules, pages, are Texas history. <laughs> Starting in the Paleozoic era. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> I did get a laugh out of that. You know, Texas history 30 million years ago, dinosaurs died and created oil. <laughs> then we get along uh-huh. to grazing animals. The history. Oh my God. I'm not that much older than you guys, but you don't have any chance remembering this commercial. Sinclair. Do you even remember them as a gas station? No. Oh, yeah. They had a little animated commercial where it showed the little cartoon dinosaur sinking into the earth and getting crushed into pools of oil. <laughs> okay, I did not see that. But... Put a dino in your tank. Okay. Yeah, I was about to say, Tucker Seriously. in your tank is the only one I remember. But anyway. Yeah, yeah. In, in Dallas, mean, RPG, it all starts with the Big Bang. <laughs> they emphasize so much on Texas history for three pages of the 16-page rules. Which, by the way, you don't really need well, that. Actually, in that was the script, the scriptwriter's guide that had that in it. But yeah, can you say filler? filler? <laughs> a lot of filler. One page, less than a page. None of these books would even make a decent coaster on your. Wow. <laughs> yeah, in the era of four hundred plus page rule books, I mean this this would be like a, a micro game, you know, equivalent today. But 
Anyway, Liz, five. I will start off with there's a there's a rule in the game. We're talking about the different types of conflict that you can get into um, during the conflict phase. One of the things you can do, as noted by the various skills and abilities that you have, seduction. The game book says seduction can be used only against characters of the opposite gender who are not related to the seducing character. That's questionable. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, the first part of that sentence is so very 1980s and adorably naive. And the second part of it is leaving me thinking, what kind of playtesting sessions did you guys have to feel you had to codify no incest into the seduction rules? The person who shot JR was his sister-in-law that he was sleeping with. Yeah, but... <coughs> In law, that, that's merely uh, illegal. <laughs> it's, not, it's not immoral. I'm just like saying. The, the funny part, though, is since I didn't watch Dallas, I looked up the plot and various characters on Wikipedia because I wanted to see, you know, because they keep banding about all these names, and it's like I have no idea who any of these people are, and of course they're expecting you to already know them. But I found out that the rancher dude who works under Ellie, the wife, uh, his name's Gary, who apparently is there mostly to seduce women, ends up sleeping with Lucy, the granddaughter of the elder Ewings. She's college age, right. nobody panic. But then several seasons later, the actor- Well, you've got gray hair, that's still jailbait. That's not right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> unless you're in Arkansas. But anyway- Or art school. <laughs> several seasons later, the, the actor was unhappy with his role on the show, so Larry Hagman, the guy who played JR, apparently told him, well, why don't you convince them to make you the illegitimate son of Jacques Ewing? And so they did that. And then somebody brought up, well, doesn't that mean you slept with your niece? <laughs> and that actor on talk shows was like, I am just prayerfully hoping that people forget about that first season thing. <laughs> so there's even precedent in the show. Yeah. But anyway, uh, okay, Jim? I was so engaged in what everybody's saying, I lost track of my own thoughts there. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I just want to roll with that, how problematic it is in 2022 to read a role-playing game with uh, 80s primetime soap opera mores mm. portrayed in it. Because <laughs> yeah. uh, that does have an impact on the rules because the um, special abilities some of the characters have are just... Wouldn't fly today. Wouldn't fly at all. Oh, yeah. Like, so, uh, resist or affect any Ewings. Oh, that's not so bad. Uh, resist or affect child wife. 20 versus JR seduction resist only. So, yeah, I went straight to that too, Liz, which is like, ooh. ooh. <laughs> Sue Ellen, I mean, you know, all her goals are like shopping. Yeah. She's oh, overdrafted no. her bank book. And like, oh, wow, this is so late 80s or late <laughs> 70s, isn't it? Oh, no, I've spent too much money shopping. I need to cover it up so I don't get in trouble with trouble. my husband. <laughs> and then JR will ah. cut my allowance. Oh, dear. <sighs> yeah. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. Well, as I explained, I was married in 1980, and that wouldn't have flown with my wife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Okay, my number five. There's one of the attributes, luck, seems to be there solely as a saving throw. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. And basically, if any bad thing happens to you, you get a luck roll. And if you make that luck roll, you avoid the bad thing. This seems pretty counterintuitive to me. At least when I read the first rule book, then when I was in the scriptwriter's book, I came across a little rule about how you can only do three actions per phase. 
to where it's like, okay, so you're limited in the number of roles you can do. So if somebody does four bad things to you, you can only potentially parry three. But all I can think of is you guys stuck this in because games were ending too early. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, at the beginning, though, when they talk about luck, it says that the characters who have a value for it can roll the dice whenever they wish. Yeah. And then later on, it's like, oh, no, you can only do three actions. It's like, well, which is which it? Which is yeah. it? Yeah. You guys didn't watch the show, right? There was a whole season that was just broadcast on regular network TV, whatever network Dallas was on. And then the, the CBS, premiere of the I following think. season, it was all a dream. So somebody rolled snake eyes yeah. on it. <laughs> Right, I think it, it nope, was like... That, that whole season was just a dream. Either Bobby Ewing died or something, and so they the fans so had a bad reaction to it that, that the next, beginning of the next season, Bobby's coming out of the shower, and oh, none of that ever happened. It was all a weird dream. Okay, now I'm suspicious, because it seems like maybe you did watch the show. No, I just read <laughs> the Wikipedia pages. He's a Wikipedia watcher. Like, like having a TV guide. You have a TV guide, you don't need a TV. Anyway, that's my five. Four, Corbett. Since he had on luck, power is the other core stat. Power and luck are pretty much the only physical stats in the game. Everything else revolves around seduction, intrigue. Coercion. Yeah, it's all yeah. about trying to figure out. But if you were to get into a fist fight, which there were fist fights in the show. There were actual physical activities to deal with in the show. A lot of them involved riding horses for some reason. But anyway, you would have to roll on power. And I think it's really funny that JR, of course, has the top power score so if he were to get into a fist fight with anybody he would probably win and right behind him is Jacques, which is his dad for anybody who hasn't seen the show we, sh we never really described the show this is a show by the way <laughs> that's why jr was shot nobody could just punch him <laughs> yeah nobody could punch him take him by surprise if you're under 40 and you're listening to this podcast consult wikipedia <laughs> <laughs> mike did yeah i did <laughs> But I should point out that they have a base class. They have a bunch of like basic characters in the back to kind of quickly throw out, like, "Oh, here's a here's a cop. Here's so and so. Here's somebody else." Jr. has more physical strength and power than anybody, uh, including the local police, the FBI, like all, all the military. It's like it's like he got an infinity gauntlet and can do whatever he wants. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, no, no, no. That was Larry Hagman, and he didn't have an infinity. Gauntlet, he had a genie bottle. So this is one of his wishes. I get it. <laughs> the show ran to 1991, in case you didn't know that. 1991. I, that surprised me. Oh, and, and again, like 10 years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. They, they did a, a continuation, not a reboot, a continuation. Crazy. Yeah. I, if someone had asked me, I would have assumed it went out in the mid 80s, mm -hmm. but I never watched it. I also never knew Knott's Landing was a spinoff. Yeah, I did not know that either. Not that I watched it either, but I saw gobs of ads <laughs> for it on TV, you know. So, anyway, power's ridiculous. But anyway, Go ahead. Power's ridiculous. <laughs> Liz? I guess getting back to what I was talking about earlier with the whole, you know, first it says one thing about luck, then it says something else. There's a lot of contradictory text like that within the rules. And it makes me think there wasn't a lot of proofing going on before this went to print. In addition to the whole thing about luck, there's a part where it says, you know, the director relieves the other players of the burden of knowing all the rules. And then that's followed shortly after by, it is the director's responsibility to teach the other players the game rules. It's like, okay, do the players need to know the rules or don't they? <laughs> yeah, that's not that there's tons of rules to actually teach once you there's can find them all. four whole pages. <laughs> <laughs> four pages, Mike. You're right. A good copy editor would have caught that and put a little red circle around yep. it. My God, my 
my heritage paint and play game was more of a role playing game than this was. But anyway, <laughs> ah, won't won't keep beating that dead equine. <laughs> All right, Jim. Well, I'm I'm so glad you brought heritage up because accord also according to Wikipedia, Dallas the role playing game is only the second ever licensed RPG based on a television show. The first was Heritage's Star Trek role playing game, which was also a tiny little skinny book with barely any rules in it mm-hmm. from 1978. But they at least gave you minis. Yeah, yeah, those minis weren't bad for back in the day, and it was a much better TV show. <laughs> what would Dallas minis be? <laughs> oh, you remember? You remembered that? You were buying minis in the eighties. There were people were there were Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle minis, and they did the whole comic book line. Well, that's different. That's nerd friendly. But Dallas, that'd be like you know, new from Grenadier Barbie mini sets. Well, Grenadier did. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm gonna get completely off topic. Grenadier did Snow White and the Seven Dwarves minis for Disney. Uh-huh. I swear okay. to God. Okay, I'll buy that. Hey, if but, you uh, had a if you had a line of minis for Dallas, you could use them to play the Papers and Paychecks game that they talk about in the <laughs> Quite true. Quite true. Yeah. Uh, number four. Number four. My number four is just that the whole idea is such a missed opportunity because they are basically a card game versus being a role-playing game. So it would have just been a short hop to just go ahead and and do Dallas the board game overall. Mm-hmm. I know SPI didn't do family board games as such. Even TSR struggled with that at times. They did Dawn of the Dead. Mm-hmm. And uh, Escape from New York. But to your point, Mike, there's a role-playing component in almost any game with little pieces you move around from Monopoly to Risk to Diplomacy. So it still could have been role-playing e and just be a board game. And I think the whole problem was that just a lack of RPG experience amongst the writers employed by SPI, because what else did they do role-playing game-wise? Dragon Quest. Universe was actually, I remember at the time, semi-well-regarded, but that had an old traveler guy behind it, you know, and that's it. That's all the role-playing games they ever published was Dallas, Dragon Quest, and Universe. So they didn't have the in-house talent to even attempt this. If they should have done a straight board game and it would have been, it would have sold at least a few hundred more of those 80,000 copies. Yeah. Well, in their defense, they weren't the only ones to try it. Didn't TSR do an uh, All My Children's role-playing mm-hmm. gaming sort of slash board game? Yep. Yeah, this is the thing that I wanted to tell Liz. Falcon Crest Liz is the, is the name of the role-playing game that everybody's that Steve is obsessed with at night to dinner table. <laughs> it might have only been on for one season, but in Muncie, Indiana, they play Falcon Crest, the role-playing game. <laughs> awesome. Which is a satire on what we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, my four. Since uh, Corbett bashed on PowerPoints, I'll do it too. <laughs> First, a little clarification PowerPoints are basically a pool of points you can use to modify your attack or defense rolls. I love how you ca- they count triple if you're using them for coercion, which I find amusing. But anyway, they recharge from quote-unquote episode to episode. They suggest you use pennies as the tokens for your PowerPoints, which I find amusing. On the whole, I guess it works because as an attribute, it's certainly what you would use to coerce a guy, but it just seems awfully abstract. I wish they had even just put in like power cards or something, sort of like they did in Divine Right, where you have everything from using crass bribery, blackmail... Okay, you couldn't use white or dark magic, although it would make 
Dallas more interesting if you do that. <laughs> <laughs> kinda, Voodoo! Kind of a Dark Shadows vibe going on that way. But anyway, so yeah, I mean, I see what they were doing with PowerPoints, but I think the way it was done, it was just too abstract. And I suspect that not only does JR have the highest total because he was the star of the show, or at least the main villain, mm. if they figure that the players are Dallas fans, maybe they presumed everybody's going to gang up on JR anyway, so he needs all the help he can get. Well, and all the story plots they were saying, like, oh, JR is probably going to think that everybody's going to gang up on him, so he'll try to do this, this, and this. Like, thanks for telling me what I'm going to do. <laughs> that did not happen at North Texas Con. <laughs> My advice is watch out for Bobby. <laughs> The sweet, nice guy. Yeah. The man from Atlantis. Anyway, Corbett, three. You know, on a good note, I will say, I think as a sort of separated game, it would probably work. I think it'd be interesting to try some of these sort of interactive tactics as a, as a uh, social... That's the thing, though. It's the weird part. It, it's, it's tactical social activity. Mm-hmm. And so you, I was like, oh, I could see it maybe put into a D&D game where you're trying to role play out the group, but then you're just throwing the role playing out and everybody has to tactically think through what their next line is going to be as opposed to this goblin stabbing me. Well, he would have because you slept with my sister. Right? <laughs> no, I didn't. I slept with a goblin. Well, I mean, actually, Corbett, that that part of the role-playing experience in this game is legit, because when we played it, we were absolutely in gangs out in the halls, plotting against the other half of the table. (laughs) Yeah, okay, so it does work that way. Very diplomacy. Yeah. And that's what I was kind of seeing, but I was I was thinking like it's an it would almost make an interesting way to like force role playing on people that don't want to role play. They just want to go in and start hitting things. Like, well, now you have to hit them with your thoughts. Yeah, and no. Are you really role playing? Or are you just picking various tactical maneuvers to use in a given turn? You're definitely doing more tactical maneuvers than you are role playing. But it sort of forces it. Yeah. Kind of. And I put a big question mark on the end. Yeah. I, I don't I think that the director could make you role play, you know, they could make it. You can't just do that. You've got to role play it out right now, you mm-hmm. know? but nothing in the game encourages that. Yeah, not really. Not really at all. All right, Liz, you're three. Uh, one of the things that I did like about the way the game was set up is that victory conditions for characters change from game to game as well as special characteristics that can apply to the characters. This keeps the characters from being static and means that a character who may be less interesting to play in one adventure um, will be more interesting in another one. Unless it's Sue Ellen. She's always uninteresting. (laughs) (laughs) Well, right, because the the victory conditions are specific to the character being played. So there can be multiple winners, which is where all that wheeling and dealing from the show comes into the game. Yeah, because you can get victory points doing the wheeling and dealing. And so if you have two people who met their victory conditions, then it comes down to who got the most points. I was going to say, they, they claim more than one person wins, but they still promote the guy who won, got the most points as the winner. Mm-hmm. And, so. and, and, and and not to mention, they're... It's a role-playing game where someone wins at the end. What's up with that to start with? Yeah, that just... that Talk about the antithesis of most role-playing games. So that's yours? Yeah. Okay, Jim, three. 
I feel like this game would be an excellent exercise in like a mental hospital. <laughs> <laughs> get the the in, the patients to work their issues out. No, uh, let's see, my number three is normally when I do these things, and it's a game that's not to my taste or my cup of tea. I still try and find good parts, like fair and equal news coverage. And I don't know if this is a good part, but I at least thought it was interesting. I liked how they divided the characters up. Normally, you just have PCs and NPCs, right? You're either player character and NPC, but there was like two grades of NPCs. There were minor characters, which are on cards that you either are dealt or fight for out in the middle of the table and organizational characters, which are not just an individual, but like a whole organization, like an oil cartel right. or something. And in, and in a weird way to me, that connected with these sort of card power things they started to try to jack into fourth edition D&D. Instead of like what we're all used to in D&D and, and other things, NPCs and henchmen are all, it's all about loyalty and morale checks. Well, not in this game. It's a card you either got or you won out on the table and that uh, individual or organization is yours to use. And I think that's at least interesting and noteworthy, if not good. <laughs> You know, I wonder if you could make the game more interesting if you incorporated some of the Illuminati organizations from the Illuminati card game into this. Yeah, the hmm. whole whole controlling thing is very kind of proto-Illuminati. <laughs> hey, there's an eye at the top of that pyramid on all those dollars the oil money, the oil <laughs> yeah. reserves generate. So that was my number mm-hmm. three. Okay. Mike. Mike three. How about you, Mike? What's your number three? <laughs> my number three is investigation part of the victory conditions that we've been talking about in a given episode is each character needs to either control a person or an organization or keep someone else from controlling it now there are other circumstances where you get credit for it if a third player has control of a given thing but that's very episode specific but one of the ways you can get control on of things is to make investigations and see if you can find blackmail material or that sort of thing, whatever the director comes up with, really. Mostly it just means you can either dislodge a character card or make it uncontrolled. But one interesting thing is you can even use that skill on the director because the director has several cards out face down that he will introduce as the scenes go by as plot complications or whatever. And if you succeed at that role, you get to look at the card and then hand it back. You don't have to show it to anyone else. So just you know what's coming. And that was an interesting idea, I thought was, if you're going to have a, such a card-based system, it's it's pretty good. So, Corbett, too. Well, I'll follow suit. I liked the idea that plot plot devices are cards. It seems weird, but you could throw it down and like, aha, I've got the letters from Sue Ellen. Flap! Ta-da! <laughs> it's, it's, it's got a certain dramatic appeal, and it's kind of, you know, basically, I've got the thing. I've got the button. Yep. <laughs> I thought it was I thought it was kind of neat. So harping on like the card part, not bad, but it could be a board yeah, game very it, easily though. I agree with Jim on that. And I'm sure somebody's already published this, but it might be interesting for somebody to put out like a deck of plot cards. So if you're like out of ideas as a GM, you can just flip a card and it's like, "Oh, hey, this happens." Okay. All you need to do to make that happen is have a hit box game like uh Cosmic Encounters where they did like seven different bags of expansion cards and well, yeah, for Cosmic Encounter, but I, I'm <laughs> saying just a generic set of, kind of like you do have like... Oh, not for Dallas. I thought you were saying somebody in 2022 should print out 
Dallas plot cards. No, no, no. I was saying plot cards just for generic RPGs. I think it would oh, be great. That's a much better idea. Yeah, I would here. agree that yeah. nobody wants an expansion to this game. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, we've got more than enough as it is. Okay, uh, Liz, two. Number two. Okay. Another interesting rule that I liked is there is a process for trying to put another character in jail. Damn if they it. are caught committing an illegal act. <laughs> it's an illegal act. You can try to put me in jail for it. But anyway, yeah, if you are caught committing an illegal act, there's a process for trying to be put in jail by another character. And victory points can be earned for every step through the process that is successful. So even if you don't ultimately succeed in getting them put in jail, just getting partially through the process is still potentially lucrative for the player trying. Yeah, and the steps are like arrest, indictment, conviction, jail time. You know, stuff yeah, stuff like that. It's and depending on what the illegal act is, whether it's a major felony or just a misdemeanor, then you've got various adjustments to the roles and stuff for that. You just gave me an idea. Like if you were to decide that you wanted to, for some reason to do this today, you would be doing Better Call Saul, the role playing game. Yeah, mm. <laughs> which just be about as morally ambiguous and problematic. So <laughs> role play some of those characters. Okay, Jim, you're two. My number two is please cue Jim's seemingly every episode rant about licensing media properties and turning them into role playing games. This one has that out the wazoo. You're trying to take a group of players that want to play a role-playing game, what's their most experience? It's going to be with D&D or something very similar to the dynamic of D&D. And now they have to try and play characters that are already established in a, a media property like Dallas, the TV show, where there are antagonists and protagonists and antiheroes and heroes. And who the hell wants to play Cliff Barnes in the first place? You know, that's as bad as sitting down to play Doctor Who, the role-playing game, and getting saddled with Adric. You know, <laughs> who wants to play that? Wow, that's harsh. Sorry, Matthew Waterhouse. I mean, you're not I, wrong, just it's it's harsh. I, I thought a lot about that comparison. Cliff Barnes and Adric, I feel like that's about mm -hmm. right. Tough, but fair. All right, mine too. But you know what I'm saying? Everybody wants to be JR. Everybody wants to play the Doctor. Everybody wants to be Captain Kirk. What about your number two, Mike? I, I was waiting for you to be done. Are you done? <laughs> I don't know. Am I? I don't know. Are you? <laughs> Let's wait and find out. I wish I was better at throwing it to you. I should really work on that. What do you say, Mike? My number two. According to the rule book, the three scenarios provided, the three episodes, I should say, require all nine characters in play. Oh, you're right. That was now, crazy. Oh, ten if you count the director. Now... If you look in the scriptwriter's book, they say, well, you can cut some people out, and they give you a list of the people that you should cut out first all the way up, but they don't tell you how to handle their goals and how they interact with other goals, the contradictions, and if they're part of the scenes. Because obviously, if Sue Ellen isn't in the first episode... No that, one will know. Oh, wow. Ooh. You are really catty, aren't you? Harsh. <laughs> I had to play Sue Ellen, and just reading through the various adventures in this book. Was oh, that who you played at North Texas? Yes, I played Sue Ellen. She was boring then, and she's boring in all of these adventures, and who really needs her in any of them? <laughs> but there is a major subplot that involves her in one of the scenes. So what do you do? Cut that scene? 
it, it no, doesn't tell you that. She had to play a character whose uh, most astounding fact was she was a former uh, Miss America, which is in the past, and she's old now. <laughs> so how, how does that impact anything? It's like, nothing. <laughs> Nobody wants to play Bobby. What do you do then? <laughs> or JR, God help you, you know? I mean, it's like none of... Oh, okay, Sue Ellen, maybe that character Lucy can be tossed aside. But most of the others, to a greater or lesser degree, have screen time. Because yeah. they had to include everybody, but then they tell you when, if you don't have enough players. I imagine the cut list just goes, because I didn't read it, it just goes straight in reverse order up the credits mm. of the show. Probably. I think, yeah, Le- JR is probably the last. In, in Wikipedia, one of the notes was that he was in every single episode that he was involved in. He's never missed an episode. That's why they canceled the show at the 14th seat. 13th season when he shot himself <laughs> <laughs> let me clear that jr shot himself not larry hagman just to be clear oh, man but they could at least tell you okay if you're not going to play with jock ewing it's because he had a heart attack and he's in the hospital right hmm. right but yeah that bugged me corbett bring us home number one well it's not really about the game but i really thought it was interesting to note james james dunnigan the guy who wrote this wrote like a lot, and I mean that in an excessive amount, of war games. That does not shock me, having read these role-playing games. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, and you know, it the shows. One little bit of uh, historical gaming significance I thought was interesting was James Dunnigan was a contributor for Strategy and Tactics. And when mm-hmm. the owner of Strategy and Tactics fell on hard times, he sold him the rights to Strategy and Tactics for a, for a dollar. <laughs> I'd buy that for a dollar. Like, strategy and Tactics, who's going to read that? <laughs> Watsy, if you're listening, I'll buy Game World for a dollar. <laughs> Done deal. And from that, he built SPI, and then they kicked him out. Sold, they? <laughs> they kicked him out when they were on our times. Maybe for this game, for all Very we know, possible. <laughs> but he wrote a lot of games. I mean, he wrote a lot of. Oh, games. he wrote tons of games. I mean, just just guards and from '67 up to '92, like something at least two or three every year. So he pumped them out. Oh yeah, I I would not be surprised if he if you looked down the list and he like wrote half the games SPI ever put out. It would not surprise me. If you're listening, sir, in your 80s, we apologize for this review of your game. <laughs> I don't. But that's that's just crazy. Anyway, nothing big. A prolific war game writer, and boy, the rules show. <laughs> Liz, one. Okay. It's not much of a comment, but as you may have gotten the idea from the previous parts of this episode, there's a lot of backstabbing, double dealing, seduction, etc. that goes on in this game. And yet the book initially describes itself in the introduction as Dallas is a family role-playing game. What kind of families do you people have? Why, dysfunctional ones, of course. <laughs> yeah, play with your kids. It'll be fun. When they said family RPG, I think they meant the Ewing family. Ah, may, I guess. <laughs> Maybe. I'm it's reaching. Family. I, I know family I'm reaching, but it's all I got. <laughs> It's like, this is not a family role-playing game. Do not play with your children. <laughs> just just don't. The Game of Thrones role-playing. Yeah! <laughs> God, can you imagine re-releasing Dallas, but changing all the characters for the Game of Thrones characters? Wow. Well, the seduction rules would have been written differently. Oh, not very differently. All right, Jim, number one. My number one is just a complaint about the quality of the box set and all its components itself. I was a young man when this came out, and we bought 
everything, somebody in our war game group. And uh, earlier, Liz, I was mentioning another SPI game, John Carter Mars. That box set was in a sturdy box. It was about two inches thick. You had a tray for the counters. There were sheets and sheets of counters, uh, thick rule books for the two or three sub games that are in John Carter Mars. And it might give you and I a splitting headache to play a war game of that complexity. But that's what SBI was capable of. But they also published like these little bag games that would do like awful green things from outer space was to dragon. They would do a game that would start out in strategy and tactics. Then they'd sell it as a little mini bag game. And then if that sold, they might make a little one of these little thin box sets. Or they'd cram four of them together and call it a quad. A Napoleonic so, quad, for example. Right. You you feel me. So this is yeah. a box set with a level of component quality equivalent to the creature that ate Sheboygan. <laughs> yeah, they, they kind of did that with uh, Dawn of the Dead, too. I wonder if that was, they felt like it was like a requirement for sale in retail, maybe? I, I, I'm sure it was mainly a cost factor. Cause yeah, I was going to say, if this was when they were starting to have their monetary difficulties, they may have been cutting back on the quality of their components to try to save money. I, I mean, I know things have changed in 40 years, but they haven't changed that much. I mean, box sets are horrifically expensive to produce. Yeah. You know, at least once a month, somebody comes to me today and says, I'm going to do a Kickstarter and I'm going to do a box set. And I'm like, well, here's my advice. Don't, mm-hmm. don't do that. Yeah. I was reading an early Space Gamer recently where Howard Thompson, a guy known for his cool, equal disposition and lack of nastiness, went on a tear about how most box games, the box, we can't tell the fans that the box actually costs more than the booklets and the game inside. Oh, yeah. And if you decide that it has to have dice inside, you just doubled all that. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Crappy components for crappy Mm. crappy, crappy components. As we've mentioned a lot, the rules for this game are like four pages, maybe four and a half if you take all the smatterings that were in the scriptwriter's guide for no reason. But, you know, it is a little more complicated than that, but so many of the rules seem to be episode specific. Mm. I think that's how they got away with some of it, which is fine if it had come with like an episode booklet, which they God knows they had the page count to do, but three episodes and then you have to design your own. And that's a lot to put on the director. Why is it called the story, the scriptwriter's guide when it's the director as the GM? I, I don't get that. But anyway, yeah. I left that off the list. That's one of my pet peeves is every game thinks they have to. I mean, we've got three terms that are handy, game master, referee and judge. But no, it's got to be something fancy. Yep. Yep. And they did it arguably twice here because they gave it two different ones because i think that's the only time you see the term scriptwriter it'd be like imagine getting like an adventure you buy an adventure for your game and the back half of it is nothing but rules specific for that adventure i don't know about you but that would annoy me maybe it's just me i don't know but no no mike i think your argument is cogent and well presented (laughs) and it's not wrong No, no, that's it, period. (laughs) Oh, okay. I was expecting the the backhand there. So, okay. Well, thank you. Of course, you're not saying you agree with it. You're just saying it's cogent and well-presented. Okay, for Christ's sake, I agree with you. (laughs) (laughs) You don't have to agree with me. I was just making that comment because I don't think... I think Mike is right. Mark it on the chalkboard. (laughs) (laughs) Banner day. All right. Well, let's take a podcast break then. And let's go into what makes the save. 
The time has come again, my friends, for the North Texas RPG Con in the Dallas-Fort Worth Airport Hotel Marriott International from June 3rd to June 6th. It's a weekend of fun, old-school gaming, and just great times. So, see you there. Reach the Pinecomb Hotel to have breakfast with Brooke. But I'll be at the Chateau with Adam. A friendly game of all my children turns not so friendly when someone's out to... Ruin Phoebe's hairdo? Read Angie's diary. All My Children turns a proper party into a Pine Valley affair. Testify against Tad. Bring Jesse. All My Children, a game. To be good, you've got to be bad. This portion of the show is being brought to you by Philips Milk of Amnesia, the over-the-counter remedy that works so well, you'll never remember why you used it in the first place. What makes a save and what is going to take? Free art! We'll start with Corbett. Uh, what makes this a... It's kind of an interesting take on storytelling, but it's basically an interesting take on social interaction as a mechanic through the game. And I think it could be tweaked and used in other games, maybe. Possibly. And of course, what doesn't make the save is it's <laughs> because of this tactical-based, storytelling-driven game. It is a non-cooperative type of game, so you're in no way heroes ever but you know hey you spent 30 bucks on it, it's yours now <laughs> yeah like i think it was 10 bucks at the time but i think at 1980 dollars that would no i was i was throwing shade on jim there <laughs> oh, okay sorry sorry my bad my bad okay liz they can't all be winners when they show up for me babe. i can hear uh, Liz now what makes a save this show's almost over <laughs> <Woo>! <laughs> there are no tables in this game <laughs> that's true that's very Surprisingly. true i i should i should add that into my makes the save <laughs> one there are no tables yay um, at the end of the day the game pretty accurately gives you the feel of watching an an episode of a nighttime soap opera they manage to incorporate the elements of a standard sort of soap opera thing you know your conflict your resolution blah 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 into the game mechanics and the opposed role system for attributes is fairly straightforward the way they went around explaining those mechanics was overly cumbersome but the mechanic itself is a good one it's solid i agree with corbett you could probably incorporate it in some way into other games doesn't make the save again corbett and i are almost on the exact same page here Apart from the negotiation phase of the game, there's really very little role-playing at all. It's all opposed dice rolls against one another, and it's not really a cooperative play system. You make your alliances, but they are there purely to go toward your own personal victory conditions, and you can break those alliances just as quickly for the same reason. I personally do not enjoy adversarial games much, unless it's a board game like Monopoly or something that relies predominantly on chance, I really do not enjoy deliberately trying to undermine other people at the table with me. And I just do not find that kind of thing fun at all. So again, it was amazing that I had as good of a time as I did with Michael Curtis's game, because that's really not my cup of tea at the end of the day. I I have a feeling we're all probably going to have the no doesn't make the save. <laughs> but let's find out, Jim. I was having a great time when Mike ran this until 
Bobby Ewing stabbed me in the back. Um, <laughs> uh, what makes the say for this, and thank you, Liz, for goading me into this one with an email earlier in the week. This is <laughs> Dallas, a role-playing game does not hold the honor of the worst role-playing game ever produced. That honor still belongs to Timeship. <laughs> because at least Dallas, the role-playing game, does in fact contain the city of Dallas in it. <laughs> Unlike Timeship, in which there are no Timeships within the game. It just includes the words role-playing and no role-playing. <laughs> <laughs> I see where your priorities are. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like I, how I can't get over in the J.J. Abrams movie, they built the Enterprise on the surface of the earth i can't i can't get past that that's just me <laughs> your light years may vary <laughs> what doesn't make the save i think we all know what doesn't make the save but i have a particular one what doesn't make the save is despite them printing eighty thousand copies of this this game is still somehow considered collectible i got my copy a few years ago they're on ebay right now there's one with a blown out lid completely smashed flat that's 40 bucks and an untouched nice one for 50 bucks and that's just a war crime <laughs> And then and I've, I've heard people talking about, oh, do you have that? Do you have that? And I had to go get it. And that sucker. <laughs> <laughs> See, they got it and they don't want to be the only ones suffering. So they go, did you get that? Did you get it? To go to right. get it. Yeah. <laughs> don't do what we did. <laughs> don't do what we did. I mean, granted, so, I bought it for Liz for a Christmas present, but I did it knowing it was terrible. Yeah. This, well, it's the person who smells the milk first. Right. Sniff, sniff. <laughs> oh! Hey, smell this. <laughs> oh, this here, is terrible. Smell here, it. Smell this. <laughs> so, yes. So, what doesn't make the save is peer pressure and Michael Curtis cost me to spend $30 on this, and now it's taken up space on my shelf. <laughs> There's always eBay. I heard they're going for pretty good bad bucks there. Apparently so. <laughs> but it's collectible. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Mine. What makes the save? It's a pretty simple system. I mean, if you bought this, you could be playing it in half an hour. You may not want to, but you could be playing it in half an hour. Well, if you bought heroin, you could be shooting up in half an hour. That doesn't mean anything. <laughs> There's that. <laughs> but imagine if this game was just as terrible as it was, but it took you four hours to read it. Pathfinder version? It almost did take me four hours to read it. <laughs> okay, fair point. Fair point. <laughs> this was hard. Okay, doesn't make the save. One line in there covers it. How to win. <laughs> that line shouldn't be in a role-playing game. How to win. Like, how do you win? Did you have a good time? You won. Okay? That's a, no. I so. agree. See, that's what I'm saying, too. That's it was, That was written by somebody that didn't understand how role-playing games work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Read Strategy and Tactics from between 1967 to about 1977-78. And, yeah, the disdain for role-playing games practically oozes off the pages. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, this has been the... Dallas role-playing game. Thank you, DM Woo. Kojo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's face it. We would have covered it sooner or later anyway. Well, I, I really think DM Kojo should definitely go buy a copy off of eBay right now. Because... <laughs> no, oh, wait. No, I think he should buy Jim's copy. <laughs> I, no, no, I've got it. We all need to get together and collaborate on this. Let's send DM Kojo an email about this episode. <laughs> <laughs> One of your Tim Kask emails? <laughs> Oh no, those are phone calls. <laughs> I just, I just, I just call him up sometimes. Those, and those require the personal him. touch. Yeah, yeah. Coho, uh, send your phone number to Jim. He needs to call you about something. <laughs> and uh, say good night, everybody. Good night. See ya. I, I shot myself. There we go. <laughs>
30 bucks for this free arc? <laughs> the Safer Half Podcast is a production of the Mud Puppy Games Network and the Gagman Podcast. The Safer Half theme music is provided by the band Mississippi Bones. You can find them at mississippibones.bandcamp.com. All player characters mentioned in this podcast are fictional, and any resemblance to PCs living or dead is purely coincidental. No NPCs were armed in the making of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Save for Half. I'm going 20s like a 60-day impala.